Amen. If you would remain standing and open your Bibles to John chapter 4. We're going to continue our study. Today concluding chapter 4, so we'll read beginning in verse 43. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. After two days, he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine, and at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said, said to him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed, and all his household this was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. The word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask for help. Lord, we thank you for this, your word. Lord, by your spirit, help our faith. Lord, let us see with eyes of faith this glorious text. Watch you roll back the curse, Jesus. May it be an encouragement to us, a help to us. Give us reason for belief and faith today. We pray in Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. What does it mean to believe in Jesus? That's the whole point. That's the whole thrust of John's gospel, he tells us at the end, I'm writing to you so that you may believe. Some would say that seeing is believing. Something like, I, I have to see that with my own eyes. Like you tell somebody something great went down or you saw something great. Maybe you saw some, somebody do something crazy. And then the report comes back, I'm, I'm not going to believe it unless I see it. The Bible does this a lot. It, it talks about this connection between hearing the word and believing. I, I think about Romans chapter 10. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. We left off last Sunday. We were considering this whole scene at the well with the woman who was in shame and deeply thirsty for something in life. And Jesus says, you're thirsty for me. And then we see hunger on display at that well also. And Jesus says, hey, I have food that is you don't know anything about. It's 
to do the will of my Father. And then at the end, we see this wonderful harvest. And then it, it concludes like this. Samaritans telling the disciples, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. He's talking to the woman there. For we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Did you catch what they said? They heard Jesus and they believed I think we're meant to note that the Samaritans believe based on the word of Christ. We know he's the Savior. It's interesting to note also coming into this text that the Samaritans received no sign. Jesus wasn't putting on display a sign to give to them. He simply spoke words of truth. We've seen John deal with the nature of faith. Again, going back to the, the very beginning of his gospel, he, he says that Jesus, this glorious God, is going to break like light, like light into the darkness, and the darkness is going to push back. Not everybody's going to get it. In chapter 2, we read that Jesus cleaned out the temple, and some people really love this sign. They're celebrating Jesus, and the Galileans are there too. What does it say about Jesus' assessment of them, though? So they're all like applauding him. Yay, Jesus. Jesus, it says, on his part, did not entrust himself to them. So it says they were believing him in some form or fashion, but he was not believing in them because he knew it was shallow. He knew they were just following for the flash and the bang. All of that really helps to inform this section before us. And the way we'll break it down is like this, a delicious irony. I hope you were paying attention to those first few verses. A desperate father and a divine sign. First, this delicious irony. It's, it's so odd. You have to pay attention. You have to read closely. After two days, he departed for Galilee. And then this, in our Bibles, it's bracketed out. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. That's so interesting. So he, he, he departed for Galilee knowing this truth. No honor. You see, we have to remember, this, this is Jesus' hometown. It's not where he was born. But he grew up in Galilee, in Nazareth, a, a town in this region. This is, he's a hometown boy up there. And he's going back. You have to really note here, because he was going to be rejected. Jesus was walking willfully towards rejection. To a place of no honor. That's why he had to go deliberately taking steps out of wild success, by the way. The Samaritans came to him like a harvest, right? Look at the fields, Look, lift up your eyes. The Samaritans are coming to him in droves and believing in him. Wild success, and he leaves after two days to go to a place where he knows he will receive no honor. Again, he comes to his own people, and his own people do not receive him. Far from running away from rejection, Jesus goes to it willingly and humbly. 
And here in verse 35, and this is where it really gets delicious, it really gets thick, you, you have to, to, to hear it, they welcome him. They're like, what's going on? I thought he had no honor in his own hometown. The Galileans come out and they seem to celebrate him. It says they welcomed him. Here's the irony. This welcome that he receives is rejection. It's rejection. They want Jesus for his signs, not because they believe that he is the Messiah, not because they believe he is God incarnate, they want him for flash and bang. Not who he is. Again, know that Jesus didn't perform a sign in Samaria. And here he's coming into town and they want signs and wonders. Do we realize that there's a way to welcome Jesus, to believe in Jesus that gives him no glory whatsoever? No honor. There is a way to do that. There's a certain way to come to Jesus that may even look exciting, but it is not life-giving at all. It's not belief. Really, it's this. It's wanting something from Jesus defined by us. We define what we want from Jesus. We want to get this from you. You owe us this. I think there's some great lessons here for us. There's some who reject Jesus outright. They, they want nothing to do with him. But there are others, as we see here, these verses jammed together give us a clue that there are those who get involved in the church. They're spiritual people. They do religious activity, but they are not captured by the glory of God incarnate in Christ. They are not captured by him. They really don't believe in him. They, they are not won over by the love of God to save sinners. There's a way to come to Christ strictly for self-gratification and worldly reasons. We'll see this clearly down in verse 48. Jesus says, unless you receive a sign, you will not believe. I think there are many ways that we can see this play out in the life of the church. One way that this gets exposed is as long as everything in the church is going fine and being a believer is easy, we're good to go. I'm getting things my way. I, I, I like every, everything is comfortable here. As soon as something gets hard, as soon as sin gets challenged in our own hearts, as soon as the real us is known, what do we do then? As soon as Jesus isn't giving us exactly what we want to get out of this whole religious life, what do we do then? Do you walk away? Do you leave? Do you break fellowship with other brothers and sisters in Christ because you're not getting your way? Again, I think there's uh, something, some insight in this text. There's a way to receive Jesus and not really know him. I think that's exactly what Jesus is saying about the rejection of his own hometown. They know him too well. They're too familiar with him. They watched him grow up, and they're not going to believe. 
unless he gives them signs and wonders. He knows exactly what this welcome is, that this welcome is rejection. They are not believing that this is God incarnate. They are not believing that this is the word made flesh dwelling among us. They are not accepting him. So the question is, who's going to get it? So far in John's gospel, the disciples have expressed some faith, but we still see that they're struggling to get it. The, the clearest example we've seen so far were the outsiders, the hated Samaritans, this woman at the well. She gets it. She, she utterly gets it. Her life is transformed. And here we find another, a desperate father. So he came again to Galilee and Cana where he made the water wine and at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. There are a couple of clues here. Love this, very subtle. Two days had gone by. The third day is coming. There's something being framed here for us like, hey guys, anticipate after two days. Wait on this third day. Something great is going to happen. There's also another clue, and he reminds us, he's at Cana. He did this wonderful first sign at Cana. Clues that we should be looking for life. We don't know exactly where this is going yet, but this is so similar to, to what he did with the water and to wine. In both, there is a need that is communicated to Jesus. Both times he's going to rebuff the one coming. What does that have to do with me? Here he's going to say the, the word about the signs. In each case, the petitioner responds in faith. In each case, Jesus gives a command that is to be obeyed, and it is. In both, Jesus meets the need, and in both, we're specifically told that this is a sign of Jesus. So we meet this official some sort of kingly office, likely in the family, the court of Herod. We aren't specifically told, but he's relatively well-known and wealthy. We know he has household servants that come out to to greet him. And it is a well-known fact that royals, wealthy royals, are forces of nature and known to cause no end of trouble to those of lower station than themselves. That's just known. These guys have power over you, and you're really at their mercy. We learn that he's from Capernaum, which is a, a good ways, 16, 18, 20 miles from where Jesus is at Cana. We're told that he doesn't send a servant, but he comes himself. This dad is desperate. Desperate. In verse 47, we're given the petition of this father. He went to him and asked him to come down to heal his son, for he was at the point of death. My boy is dying. Jesus, come do something. You can see the scene and almost hear the desperation in his voice. We haven't been told anything yet about what this man believes about Jesus, but he's willing to come and ask him. He's heard enough to have his curiosity peaked. Maybe Jesus can do something. Verse 48, 
We read, so Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. That's interesting. He's talking to this man, but he's using, Jesus is using plural words here. This whole you thing. He's talking to the Galileans through this man. He's saying, you will not believe unless I give you flash and bang, unless I do these great wonders. Your hearts are hard. Plurals. Unless you crowd, unless you all, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will not believe. I think if we really listen to the rebuke of Jesus and let it critique us and our culture and our pride, this is, this is utterly countercultural. Because everything in our culture loves flash and bang. We love likes hits on our social media we love to be seen we love 15 minutes of fame this is what many strive for they live their lives for flash and bang for glory there could be no more glorious or more prestigious person in their midst than Jesus and he basically says to them, I am not for sale. Not for sale. These aren't tricks designed to impress a crowd. He's none other than the Son of God. It's interesting because the official isn't coming to Jesus asking for a sign. I think he's, he's kind of setting up a difference between the Galilean crowd that welcomed him and this man. Because all this man has, do you know what he has? Desperation. Death is on the line. His kid is laying at home, sick, dying of a fever. He's got nothing but desperation. He's not asking Jesus for this sign. He's asking for the life of his kid. Sir, he responds, he, he is not dismissed. It's not enough. Je Jesus' words don't deject him. He doesn't walk away with his head down like, man, he again doubles down, sir, come down before my child dies. He's utterly undeterred by Jesus' reaction. He isn't, again, he's not asking for a sign. He's asking for the life of his boy. It's amazing to see this. Likely a proud and powerful man. It is not easy to naturally humble yourself to come to this homeless, uneducated wonder worker. There's something in the desperation of the Father that I think reveals our own spiritual desperation. Whether we acknowledge it or not, this is our position. Life or death is on the line. What are we desperate for to answer that desperation for life? I think it's a great question. And sometimes it depends on the day how we're willing to answer it. Hey, my desperation for life today and my trust is going to be, be placed in this thing over here, this thing that I do that pleases me. There's no other place to run than Jesus. He's the only one who can give life. It's our pride due to us. 
We become impatient, wanting our own way, wanting things to to gratify us instead of coming to Christ again and again in humble prayer. That's exactly what this guy is doing. These words that this desperate dad are uttering are words of prayer. Come, come, heal him. Is that the prayer of our hearts? Lord, I'm desperate. Help me. Verse 50 gives some resolve. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. Go, your son will live. The man believed. Listen, listen to what it says. Look at verse 50 closely. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. It's a mirror image of the Samaritan's faith. They hear the word and they believe. John loves hard miracles. He loves to demonstrate how hard this must have been. Because you notice both petitions, the guy's like, hey, come with me. Come see my kid. Come, you know, if you can only be present with him, he'll be fine. And Jesus says, go. Your son will live. Miles away. Here is the creator and sustainer of all things. He can do what he wants. In heaven and on earth and under the earth, he can do whatever he wants. John wants to point out that it's it's miles away. This is hard. It's, It's not hard for Jesus. Go, your son will live. This is the glory of Christ on display. It's remarkable what this man does. Because desperate people don't do this. They don't walk away. They get answers. Have you ever been in a desperate situation, simply scared out of your mind, for maybe for a loved one, and you have no idea what to do, but you're not going to give up doing something until you get answers? You know what I mean? I think we've all been there. I think we know exactly where the position this dad is in. He's got one of two choices. He's either going to take Christ at his word, which he does, he he just walks away, or he's just going to be filled with fear and anxiety. He's going to be crushed under the weight of this thing. He walked away. He believed the word of Jesus and goes. It's really remarkable faith. Let's be um, very appreciative of his faith, he received so little from Jesus, and yet he simply believed. Calvin applies this, stating, quote, And such is the speed with which we ought to receive the word of God. But it is very far from producing always so immediate an effect on the hearers. For how many will you find that profit as such by many sermons as this man? who was half a heathen, profited by hearing a single word, end quote. We get the word week in and week out, day in, day out. We hear it proclaimed year in, year out. And he's saying, does it produce faith like this? This guy gets one thing from Jesus. Go, your son will live. And he goes. What is the word doing in our lives? How is it 
shaping how we live and think in this world. Calvin's like, look at the speed. He gets one and he obeys. The application is, let's, let's receive the word of Christ like this man. Let's hear like a child and simply believe. However, the story isn't done. We know that he goes on to verify. The servant comes out and says, hey, your son is getting better. And instead of dismissing the servant and running straight to the son, which most people would do, he wants to have a conversation about what time it was. It's a fascinating reality. It's almost like he's, he's, his faith is so increased, but he, he wants to know, hey, what time did he start getting well? It's about one o'clock. I know why. His faith is hardened into belief. And not just him, but his faith spills over into his whole family. He believed and his household. The man believed the words of Jesus. Now he comes, he knows the time, and he is assured. Good night. He, he really is. He really did this astonished. His fledgling faith is given spiritual sight to see the reality of who Christ is. He knows. I don't think his faith on the way back was super strong. I think he was probably just hanging on by a thread. I think this desperate dad, put yourself in his shoes. A, a dear loved one lay dying, and you've got one word to cling to, but it came from Jesus. What do you do with that? Do you see that the, the, the point, the application here is that it's not the amount of our faith that matters? It's not. Tremulous faith, this faith that's walking on eggshells the whole way home, that's not the point. It's the object of the faith that matters. It's Christ that matters to this man. Weak faith or incredible faith, the, the issue in faith is the object of it. Christ himself, not this man's tremulous walk home. He had a solid object. So we have this delicious irony that Jesus goes into this situation knowing that he's not going to be honored and they supposedly welcome him. We have this desperate father and finally a divine sign. This dad and his desperation is willing to lose everything, his reputation, his public dignity, everything to save his son. And Jesus does it. And he believes and it concludes, this was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. I think there are two layers to assess this sign or to, to think about it. First, the signs of Jesus are much more than just his ID. Sometimes we think that he's just taking out his uh, driver's license and showing them. See right there, it says, eternal word made flesh, son of God. You see, like, it is that. It, it, he's definitely doing that, but it's, his signs are way more than that. Ultimately, Jesus had come to reverse the curse, becoming a curse for us, 
a divine substitute who would live in our place and die in our place and rise again, conquering death in the grave. That's what he came to do. He came to reverse the curse. The miracles of our Lord Jesus are reversing the curse. Here with the word, Jesus saves this dying boy's life. Every single one of us have been touched by pain, sickness, death. So much so that sometimes we're tempted to, to say, oh, that's just normal. We get lulled to sleep, as it were. Sometimes you'll even hear something like this, death is just as natural as li living. No, it's not. Do you say that when someone close to you dies? Oh, this is natural. No, you feel pain all the way through down to the core of your being. It hurts. Reminding us again that death is a curse. Jesus doesn't say things like death is natural. No, we read our Bibles. We know that this is a curse. This is fallen. And Jesus came to reverse that. That's what he's doing with this boy. He's giving life to someone who is dying. This is a helpful way to look at the signs of Jesus, which point the way to the, which point us uh, toward the way things are supposed to be. We see this at the wedding feast. Guess what? Wedding feasts are supposed to be great. They're not supposed to run out of wine. You're supposed to celebrate. It's supposed to be a time of lavish joy for everyone involved. And Jesus made that statement at a wedding. He says, look, me coming to you in marriage, joining with his people, that is a celebration. It is worthy of a party. And he gave them so much wine they could never drink it all. And he's doing the same thing here. He's, he's rolling back the curse. He's saying this dying boy, is, that is not the way this life is supposed to be. Yes, he is, he is showing his identity, but he's doing much more. Scholar Jürgen Moldman says this, quote, When Jesus expels demons and heals the sick, he is driving out of creation the powers of destruction and healing and restoring created beings who are hurt and sick. The lordship of God to which the healings witness restores creation back to health. Jesus' healings are not supernatural miracles in a natural world. They are the only truly natural thing in a world that is unnatural, demonized, and wounded, end quote. I think that's exactly right. He is reversing the curse. The miracle of Jesus healing this boy on his deathbed will ultimately point to the work that Christ has come to do. He is coming to take dead men and women, boys and girls like us, from death to life. I think the second way we can learn from this sign is to know that Jesus knew full well that he too was a son. I don't want us to miss that. There's a very clearly defined relationship of love between the Father and the Son in this text. Let's not miss it. Jesus is a Son. The only begotten of the Father before all worlds. 
eternally existent with the Father, deployed now in flesh to the earth. He willingly healed the life of his son, knowing full well that he was going to go to his own death, willingly. It's astonishing love. He is upholding this beautiful love of this father for his son, knowing full well that he was going to lay his own life down. He answers the earthly because his mission is doing so much more. Do you belong to this Christ? Do you go pleading to him for your life? This is the application John is going after. The reason he's questioning so much about belief is he's wanting us to question, why, why do we believe? Do we run to Jesus like this? Is this me? He's going after our hearts. He's putting all of this on display so that we'll believe not in the flash and bang, not coming to Jesus for signs and wonders, not coming to him for what's in it for me, coming to him for life itself. Do we want Jesus for what we can get out of the bargain? Or just because it's him? We truly believe that he is the son of God. Is he enough? for you. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for um, this beautiful text. For the irony that's so different than our life that Lord, we run away from dishonor and you went toward it. We run to so many other things, but here we see you are the only place that we can run for life. Jesus, and we still long in this place for an end to sickness, death, disease, pain. May we long and hope because we know that you have overcome the world. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.